This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. More women, genocidal regime delegates at the COP29 Global Climate Change Summit. That's from Julia Gillard. Diversity matters. Okay, when we're cooking the planet. Yes, representation we matters. We need women across the board. Former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard has said she's appalled at Azerbaijan's decision not to include any women in the organising committee for the COP29 Global Climate Change Summit. Uh, Azerbaijan has been named f- as the host nation for the summit for 2024, has not included a single woman in the 28-member committee, which is tasked with organising the summit. <gasps> it's a bloody sausage fest oh up there. Oh, my God. It's awful. Is there anything else we should be worried about? No, nope, mainly. <laughs> with it, or is that the Mainly just it. that. The lack of women on the committee contrasts sharply with last year when the host country, the United Arab Emirates, had a committee comprised of 63% women. And that went great. They they just it's, they just worked out the awesome. United Arab Emirates. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Yeah, why can't we just be more like that? She posted a letter on on Twitter, right? And so this is a thing now. You know, yeah. she's very passionate about gender equality, which is an important issue, sure. But a lot of people pointing. She does out- one speech, and everyone, <laughs> everyone needs to stop applauding her for that speech because now she's just she's not letting it go. Like. <laughs> You know what I was thinking was for a potential Patriot episode, we could go see the play. I think they're doing the play in Melbourne again really? about Julia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. That could be fun. That could be fun. Yeah, just a um, reminder that. Uh, yeah, with her. As a, oh, sorry, go ahead. You go. No, you go. As a man. No, please. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, yes, she posted this on Twitter and she's got her kind of like wanky letterhead, which a few people pointed out that it's got the JG and this like embossed gold up the top. And I genuinely, I, because I, I only saw this because classic Max Chandler Maoist uh, yes. Twitter account yeah. retweeted it and said, sorry, how's that the main issue here? I didn't know what it was about. I started reading. The statement says the annual United Nations Climate Change Conference is a crucial opportunity for le- leaders to gather on a global stage to discuss one of the world's greatest threats. And I was like, so true. She goes on, I was appalled to learn that the 2024 host country, Azerbaijan, has announced its organizing committee and not a single woman is among the 28 members. And I genuinely, like, it was a double, I was like, wait, that is not where I, I truly didn't think she could go that far just off topic. Because, I mean, obviously there's the whole Armenian genocide or, you know, ethnic cleansing uh, issue. Yes. That I think there was a bit of contention as to whether Azerbaijan should be a host country for a conference like this where a bunch of world leaders are are coming together um, given that. But there's also the fact that they, like, after winning, you know, the tender to or whatever, being able to host this conference about climate change, they were putting out media statements that were like, and it's great because we've got so much gas here in (laughs) Azerbaijan and gas is cleaner. Gas is a clean fuel that we can use. Um, and as I think, I don't know if we've even, if we've sort of flagged this on, on the show, but there's been a bunch of chat recently about how there's all these fucking, it's just a convention of like oil tycoons now and gas corporations and fossil fuel corporations to get together at what was meant to be the climate change conference, to just like make their pitch on how you should give them money to do stuff 
to greenwash effectively. Right. Yeah. We we uh, when we had um, when you were away, actually, we had Steph on. Um, right. We sort of went through COP twenty eight and how much of a shit show it was and how disappointing it was and the presence. I think more fossil fuel lobbyists were there than ever before. And how, yes, these fossil fuel giants were shaping the narrative. According to GetUp, Azerbaijan owns one of the world's largest gas fields and plans to increase fossil fuel production by a third over the next 10 years. Now, cool. look, if I were to give a little bit of credit here in this Women's Agenda article about this story, they go on to sort of talk about the gendered impact of the climate crisis, right? And the, and the, man, the climate displacement her, can disproportionately affect women. Yeah. Right. Okay. So she mentioned this stuff as well. So it's like, yeah. I guess. I guess so, you know, and raising awareness or making that critique yeah, but what's gonna uh, have, is, is have, perhaps what's worthwhile. But women yes, the delegates, idea that if you have more women on this committee, <laughs> isn't the head of fucking Woodside Meg O'Neill a woman? What, what, what's she Probably, doing? Probably, yeah, exactly. No, I'm not. Sorry. What, how many times do we have to have this conversation? The fucking, no. Julie Gillard, just stop. You had, it was a good speech, all right? You don't need to keep going on about it. I mean, I think it's cool the women are speaking up for other women. That's that's my as an ally. Like that's where I'm coming from. But ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Tom Ballard, ally. If you want the dole for life, free marijuana, vote Greens. There's a saying in politics: you can't out Green the Greens. But uh, I think Peter, we've just been proven wrong on that one. A Labor teal or Labor Green coalition would be a nightmare for us all. We're stuck with the hosts of Chapo Shithouse Podcast. This is what a feminist looks like. And this <laughs> is Serious Danger, Hello. a podcast about green politics in Australia. I'm Emerald Moon, misogynist, and that's Tom Ballard, feminist. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Hello, sisters. This is not an official Greens Party podcast. It's made possible with the help of Green Institute and produced by Michael the Griff Griffin. This week, I found out a few hours ago I have COVID, but I'm powering through. I'm actually Whoa. feeling okay. I got my booster shot maybe a couple of weeks ago, and maybe it's helping. So a reminder to get yours if you haven't already because COVID is about. But I'm braving I'm braving my little sore head and my sore throat to talk about Invasion Day and campaigning in 2024 with the CEO of GetUp, Larissa Baldwin-Roberts. So I'd have Larissa on. She very kindly joined me for my podcast last year, sort of ahead of the voice referendum and stuff, talk about, yes, that campaign and GetUp. So it'd be great to chat to her about Gen 26. This coming Friday is Invasion Day. What are your plans, Emerald? I will be volunteering for the um, barbecue after the rally in Musgrove Park every year. I don't know how long this has been happening now, but the Queensland Greens run the barbecue as part of the Invasion Day rally that's organised by a local mob. So we march to Musgrove Park and then there's a massive barbecue. It gets bigger and bigger every year. It's honestly fucking huge now and there's like music and dancing and uh, lots of sausages. And so there's heaps of work to do. Actually, if you... I mean, maybe I'll say this in the call to action, but yes, there's lots of work to do. There's a volunteer sign-up sheet that we can put in the show notes, you know, prepping food, setting up things, all of that. I think actually I'll be setting up beforehand. Will you be going to a rally, Tom? I hope so. I've got to look it up. I'll be in Mullumbimby. I'm doing the gig with Mandy Nolan on Wednesday night, Jan 24th. Tickets still available if you want to come see me, tell some jokes and do a Q&A with Mandy to raise money for her campaign to turn Richmond green. Please do so. Um, But yeah, I'm sticking around that beautiful part of the country for a couple of days. I'm sure there'll be something happening around that time. Um, Yeah, maybe in Byron or Lismore. Great. Okay. Yes. I'll definitely check that out. Mm. Um, thanks to our patrons to support the show before we jump into our interview we want to say thanks to Brayden, James, Lewis 
And Tim Reed, I hope he doesn't mind me revealing his full name, Brunswick, uh, the the member for Brunswick Brunswick in the Victorian State Parliament, Tim Reed, very kindly, Brunswick, very kindly uh, become a patron of the show, which is very cool of him. That's taxpayers' money, I assume, redirected into the... Yeah, patron, until you consider the, the sweet, sweet kickbacks that you get when you become a patron, <laughs> including a bonus episode every single fortnight, for example. We just released another installment in our series reading Paddy Manning's Inside the Greens. That's where Tom Tom reads to me and I think little thoughts and say them into the microphone. Um, <laughs> and actually, I thought I thought last episode was a lot of fun. I, I learned, I laughed, I loved, I lived. <laughs> It was inside the Greens and it was wonderful. It was about the anti-nuclear movement, Trotskyites and New South Wales Greens being born into the world. So if you're not a patron already, consider chucking us three bucks a month or whatever you can pay and you can listen to that and know that you are supporting the uh, humble lifestyle of our producer, Michael the Griffin, <laughs> who we need to continue doing the show and we pay out of your contributions. Patreon.com forward slash Serious Danger AU if you want to sign up and get involved. Very excited about having our guest on the show this week. Larissa Baldwin-Roberts is a proud, widgeable, liable woman from the Bunjalung Nations. She's a co-founder of the First Nations climate pressure group SeedMob and is the current CEO of GetUp, the bizarro version of Advance Australia, as I'm sure you're, uh, everyone's aware of the world. <laughs> um, hello, Larissa. Lovely to see you. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> And I like that intro around Advanced Australia. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. They're the, that is, they're the bizarre version of Get Up. That's true. Clear. Yes, I'm sorry. You guys were first. That's, that's totally That's fair. actually the truth. We were first. They had a weird Captain Get Up. It was a whole thing. We all laughed. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, they yeah. had some victories now. Maybe we'll talk about that in a sec. How is your 2024 <laughs> going so far? People will notice you're joining us from uh, outside on a beautiful day. How's 2024 going for you? I am in beautiful Minjeriba, Kondamuka country. It's been like a, I really need a recharge after last year. So this is probably the biggest kind of shutdown break that I've had in in a very long time, but just really needed to kind of recharge. Yeah. Traveled around the country a little bit, seen a bunch of family. So been taking it slow and not being checking my emails, which is a very weird thing for me to do at the end of the year to actually log off. Hell yeah. That's very important. Yeah, you, that's key. I guess I am more interested if you've been, if that includes checking out of the news then, I suppose, because that would involve following the insane culture war discussion that happens every single year. It's a wonderful Australian tradition. As we heard toward January 26, <laughs> Invasion Day, all the bullshit has started up in earnest in 2024, particularly around the Woolworths boycott in regards to Australia Day merchandise. We talked about a little bit on last week's show, but I, I don't know, have you been following much of this? and? Coles is good because they're going to stock it and you should boycott Woolies. And you. It's such rubbish. Like it, <laughs> it's just it, like every year we have this conversation, it's like Groundhog Day and like as someone who, you know, has campaigned Invasion Day for many, many years, ne- never celebrated January 26th in my life. It's just like rehashing the same conversations. It's like when the Republicans have the war on Christmas every year and you realise that that's been going for three decades Mm. and it's still (laughs) happening. So it's just like the fake outrage. But I feel like I see it peripherally. I'm very good at like not reading the comments, right? I've trained myself to be a black fella on social media and just don't interact (laughs) with stuff. Just like breathe out, 
ignore that person that is going to town in your comments and tagging me and everything here. I don't know. But you see it like this. It just, it, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for for other blackfellas who are, you know, not in the campaigning landscape, aren't online as much as I am and, and kind of like get really riled up by it. It's just like it's kind of triggering after coming out of a year after the referendum. I can see that like, you know, the commentary around it, especially from mob, is just a lot more escalated than it usually is. And it's just, I think it's just coming out of last year as well. But the commentary is ridiculous. Like, you know, Woolworths is making this decision. First of all, don't give them a pat on the back. It's Woolworths. Um, They're making this decision based (laughs) on their bottom line at creating profit. So they don't get, like, don't use us to try and get some sort of social license here. Go away, please. Um, But also it's just, it's rubbish. It doesn't sell. I don't even know what, like, Australia Day merch is. Like, (laughs) what are you talking about? It's rubbish. I saw you tweet this. You did weigh in somewhat in the discussion. Genuine question, what the actual fuck is Australia Day merch? Obviously I've never observed and not sure what everyone is crying about, but it's the if it's the flag, that's not merch. Now I believe they're still selling the flag and and the, the story, as we mentioned last week on the show, was based on this idea that they're not releasing any more Australia Day specific merch. So that is stuff like... The t-shirts that say Australia established 1788 is disgusting and fucked up as it is. Flag stubby, flag bucket hat, that kind of thing. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. You just raised my blood pressure saying that. I'm like, oh, that's what that (laughs) shit looks like. Um, (laughs) You can picture it, right? It's such an American thing. Like even the idea of like the idea I went through most in my adult life and it wasn't until I was like I got invited to a Hot 100 party and I was like, oh, you do this thing like because I'd always, you know, gone to the marches and that sort of stuff, you know, since I was very young. And so I didn't realise there was actually a big celebration that took place. And then when I moved to Brisbane, because, you know, I grew up in Lismore, didn't have any of this sort of stuff. When I moved to Brisbane and, you know, after the 45th, 10th anniversary and you know there was the whole thing with Julia Gillard losing her shoe and Tony Abbott coming out and saying you know there's no point in um you know we don't have anything to protest about basically everything's fine for blackfellas mm. in this country he didn't say it like that but basically he said that anyway mm. the whole thing ensued and Julia Gillard lost her shoe but I just remember you know those meetings and that sort of stuff and people talking about how January 26th and we had kind of lost the social license around, oh, sorry, it's the 40th anniversary, lost the social license around protesting and how much, you know, impact the intervention it had. And it has been a really big organised effort nationally to go back into embassies across the country, not just have the 10 embassy down in, in Canberra and talk about how we talk about truth-telling on January 26. And so they can have yeah. these little cultures, but at the same time, it has changed. Like I remember with some of the first mm. protests that we had like in Mianjin, like there was us like running in trying to shut down because they used to blockade off South Bank. And the first time we did, we like, run over the Goodwill Bridge and we were going to pull down the fence as the march came through the other side. And then it was like 150 cops walked out the other side and Uncle Sam was, you know, he's passed away now, but he was like, wait, you know, negotiating with the police to get us out of there and stuff like that. But that doesn't even happen anymore. Like, you know, I remember some of the stories back in the day where the big marches in, you know, when they really started to get big after all the organising and, like, they would just tack on the back of the, the Australia Day march in Melbourne and it would just be so funny to, like, you know, we started Facebook events called Capture the Flag, which is just, like, tormenting people and they would just, like, have thousands of people RSVP <laughs> and it would end up in the media. So we had some fun with it over the years, but I'm just like, you, you this is, it's, di- it's dead. What are you doing? Like... <laughs> You're trying to start an argument, trying to make it relevant. Mm. No one wants your merch and no one wants your National Day of Celebration. 
Yes. Well, well, the question of public opinion is interesting, right? Because, of course, Woolworth cites that there is a, a decline in demand for this merch, which was the reason for their decision, um, uh, which is, yes, either the free market operating in uh, as, as it is and they're reacting to it, which makes the right wing go crazy, which we've talked about the hypocrisy of that before. But I guess, yeah, where the public is at on this question of whether the National Day should A, exist, and if it does exist, should happen on January 26th is, of course, part of the debate as well. The Institute of Public Affairs published an opinion poll that was being cited across Sky News and, of course, every conservative media outlet that they found 63% of Australians still support January 26th uh, being Australia Day, despite the relentless attacks by cultural elites like us, I guess, um, and the indoctrination <laughs> of young people in schools. I mean, it, the, the same poll showed that young people were more likely to disagree with that idea, and of course, they blame on that on the education mm. system um, uh, poisoning the minds of our little kitties. But that that IPA poll was a thousand uh, respondents. Back in 2021, Australia, the ABC does the Australia Talk Survey, massive opinion poll, you know, sample size of about 20,000 people. In 2019, that survey found that 43% of people agreed that Australia Day should not be celebrated on Jan 26th, given the historical significance of that date for First Nations people. In 2021, that had grown to 55%. So actually a majority of people saying that 26 was not the appropriate um, day for it to be celebrated. So that's a much more rigorous opinion survey that, of course, has not been cited anywhere in the Murdoch media empire because it disrupts their narrative. They're much more likely to cite an IPA poll. But yeah. I don't know, just on vibes, where do, where do you think the Australian public is actually at on this? I mean, the IPA poll is rubbish. Right. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, the IPA poll is rubbish, right? I think there's a, like, there's a piece of people do want a national day um, and I can understand that, but I think that it's kind of like when people like, if you get like, you know, there's a random poll or something like that. Like if you've had like five drinks, should you drive home? And people are like, no, but like, it doesn't really mean anything. Like when people are actually going out and they're just like, oh, maybe I can drive home. This is how drink driving happens, people. So it's just like people are terrible at kind of judging what they actually want and what they actually care about. And so opinion polls, whatever. But I think when you actually look tangibly at it, right, I think there has been for many years, over and over, people very uncomfortable with, you know, the unfinished business around what is the, you know, the place of First Nations people and understanding they're not included. If you have conversations on the street with random people, people talk about things that they didn't learn about in school and the fact that we should learn about these things in school. So mm. I think Australians are very open to it. I also think when you think about, um, like the proof is like kind of voting with your feet, right? If you look at the, the gatherings that happen on January 26, people come to Invasion Day marches. They are big events. They're the hugest events that happen. The social license to have um, citizenship ceremonies is, is lost in many, many local councils across the country. People don't think this is the right day to celebrate. And I think once people understand the historical significance of this day, they understand Australia is the only Commonwealth country that celebrates its national day on its day of invasion. It's disgusting. And people are like, ah, oh, that's yeah. kind of gross. We don't want to do that. And so I think there's just some pieces like it doesn't feel right, but people are like, oh, yeah, we should have a national day, and then the IPA kind of drums it up into a bigger thing. But the reality is people are not celebrating on this day. People mm. feel uncomfortable. They treat it like any other public holiday and long, long weekend, right? And there are also like there's a huge amount of people of the younger generation who work on this day. Mm. True. I think it's interesting you talk about the the way that the shape of the 26th January like rallies have have changed over the you know over the years and it's true that it almost feels as though even just a few years ago those rallies were more specifically about 
Australia Day should not be on this day. And I still, I think that like there's still, that's, that is kind of the nominal reason for the rally, but now it's more, it's a thing that, that a bunch of people do every year and more and more people do every year and almost has like a different theme every year. Like, you know, last year, yeah, it then sort of became about the voice referendum. And this year I would say there's a strong theme of Palestinian solidarity. Like, I think that will be a great focus of, of this year. And it's interesting whether that indicates that people are, you know, not even like the debate isn't about what this date is for anymore, but it's just that this is what we do on the 26th of January and we talk about First Nations solidarity, whatever that looks like right now. Mm. Yeah, and I think this is the thing, right? January 26th has a different culture around it, around what we do. How do we mark this day, right? How do you hold the reverence on this day? It has been since 1938 a day of mourning and like my um, old grandfathers were part of making it that first day of mourning and a day of protest. And so I think like even when you think about it, like I, my dad used to say that uh, January 26th, because it only came about in the 90s, it was a response to the Native Title Act and, you know, in terms of looking at, you know, what had happened with the Mabo decision and stuff like that, the High Court challenges, there was a lot of, you know, fear within conservative Australia around, you know, blackfellas coming to claim people's backyards and all this sort of stuff. So it was like drumming up around that. But if you think about it, like the, the largest voting population, like think about boomers, right, they didn't celebrate this day. And so like the mm. idea that they all of a sudden within their, you know, 50s and 60s after, you know, that they're starting to celebrate this day and then the younger generation doesn't celebrate. So there is actually very limited history of people celebrating this thing. So mm. it's 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 a, a kind of much ado about nothing really. I was reading there was some article, like the first Australia Day, so, so-called, was on like July 30th back in the 30s and, and was I think part of a drumming up of like a draft campaign. Like, yeah, the history is crazy. And as you say, the only national coordinated celebration only began in the 1990s. I don't think I knew that it was in response to the native title debate, but that makes, um, yeah, total total sense actually. The, the idea that these- Go and look at it. Yeah, this nationalist white Australian propaganda is wheeled out whenever there's the threat that First Nations people might be getting some wins. Jesus Christ. That's it, right? And it's a piece of, it's so imported into the way that they've imported this type of nationalism from the US and tried to make it the way that Australia Day is celebrated. It's like, it doesn't actually fit us either, right? So I think there's a piece of even, and to me, one of the big turning points was like, there was a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago, when there was a big conversation around changing the date. And that was a response, I think, empathetically from a bunch of non-Indigenous people to be like, we should change the date because this is really inappropriate. And there was a lot of conversation around that. Mm. But actually part of the conversation I remember thematically for those couple of years around Invasion Day was like, no, this is not a, we're not asking to change the date. What we're trying to mm. do is truth tell. And I think people have become more comfortable with that. Like it's less, you know, you see less prevalent the idea of changing the date and that sort of stuff. It's like, okay, actually what we're talking about is the disunity within this country, the, the place of First Nations people, the injustice that continues to happen, and this is why that we mark this day. And I think it, with reverence in a, in a bunch of ways, and I I love you know looking at the different celebrations or you know you know some people communities call it Survival Day, some people call it Invasion Day, some people still call it a Day of Mourning, and it has context in different communities around the country. And I think a lot of people see this day as a day to connect with the broader. First Nations communities across this country and actually, you know, take it upon themselves to be not just good people, but just like to educate themselves right. around, you know, taking this day to listen. I still think the best uh, Invasion Day event is in Brisbane and I just love like 
you know, the, the speeches, the big march through the city, running up the hill into Musgrave Park and then just, you know, spending the day as like, you know, dancers, there's a big feed that's put on, um, a bunch of uh, local people and allies and that sort of stuff, cooking barbecues for something. It's just like come and be part of our community, right? Be part of something. And I think that's the thing that the conservatives don't get is that, you know, my dad used to say this thing around there's no word in our language for visitor is actually an invitation into our culture. We are very open people, like, you know, there's a place for everybody within our communities and that sort of stuff. It's not us trying to create the division here. And so I think when people experience it, they're like, actually, what are people going on about? There's nothing to be afraid of in this day, actually. It's incredibly welcoming in, in so many yeah, ways, not- even though there's hard truths that are told. Mm. Yeah, you're not going to see on the Sky News, you know, um, fucking like fear-mongering stories about the culture war around this. You're not going to see footage of events like the ones held at Musgrove Park. You're not going to see people just like handing out sausages and kids dancing and smoking ceremonies and and all of that. Um, they are more interested in the divisiveness, exactly, and like the shit like we've seen in the news this week, Tom, you were talking about the the guy who then went out and spray painted the the woolies because they were so upset that they're not stocking Australia Day flags. Like that's what they want. We don't, we're like, it's just, yeah, none of that nonsense, you know? (laughs) Well, it seems like the conservatives also, they want to apparently resolve this debate, but they don't really want to resolve the debate, of course, because they want to love, uh, you know, gearing up uh, nationalism and, um, and patriotism and this culture war fight every single year. But there was intervention from, Conservative radio host Tom Elliott on 3AW this week. We need to sort this out once and for all. We can't keep having the same debate. We can't let the debate be driven by corporate interests like Woolworths or by not very democratic local councils. So here's my solution, and it's a simple one. Now, what was it? Almost eight years ago, 2016, we had a plebiscite, not a referendum, a plebiscite on gay marriage. And uh, Australians, a majority of Australians said, yep, uh, there's no reason why gay people can't be as miserable as heterosexual people, so we'll let them get married. All right, last year we had a referendum on the Indigenous voice to parliaments. Uh, people overwhelmingly voted against it. Let's just have a plebiscite on Australia Day. Simple question, do you want Australia Day to be celebrated on January the 26th, yes or no? And if, as I suspect, a majority of Australians say, keep it on January the 26th, and the Institute of Public Affairs has done a poll on this, and they say 63% of Australians feel that way, then that's it. It's done. A majority of Australians and a majority of states, if they want to keep Australia Day on January 26th, that's what we do. And we stop debating it every year, and we force all local councils, if they want to have a citizenship ceremony, they have to have one on Australia Day. Every country has a national day. Every national day, someone will disagree with. So good luck trying to find another day that absolutely no one will find objectionable. Let's have a plebiscite, settle the issue once and for all. So he wants a plebiscite. We had the marriage equality plebiscite, we had the voice referendum, we had a plebiscite asking people their opinion about uh, whether we should have uh, Australia Day on January 26th if we follow the polls like that provided by the IPA. The majority of Australians, Tom Elliott believes, will vote to keep the date on the 26th. And then he sort of says like, and that's it. Then we can stop debating this every year. That'll issue. be the end of all political division and we can just move on and everyone will shut up and councils have to deal with it. You fucking wish, Tom. Um, what, uh, what would be your response to that, Larissa? He wishes. We will protest January 26th even if we have treaties. We will mark this day. Hmm. It is a significant day for Indigenous people in this country. It is a significant day in every Australian's history to understand what happened on this day how this country was colonised, 
you know, and, and talk about our true history. And if we can't have a conversation about our shared history, who are we? Which is, this is part of the funny thing, right? Like you try and have a conversation about our national day when you can't even talk about what your national identity is without us, right? Yeah. So people are uncomfortable. So yeah, you can go and have your plebiscite and I hope you make it like the freaking referendum on uh, the Republic where you give 5 million different options and nobody can agree so you're not going to get your vote across. So <laughs> shut up, Tom Elliott. It's not going to happen. We're still going to protest. It's it's so it's 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 such a contradiction, right? We have to have it on this day because of the history of this day. But when you start talking about the actual history of that day, what that actual day mm. means, you go, oh no, that's not relevant. It's all about Australia now today. Well, if none of that history connected to that day matters, then why are you so fundamentally opposed to moving the date? But of course, no. The fundamental idea of what Australia is is dependent on invasion and the dispossession of the First Nations people through violent colonization. But they don't want to talk about. Yeah, that, I guess. But also, we are too organised on like you could never out organise us on this day. You organised for months around it. We've been doing it for you know since 1938, mm. and also our protests always look better. Like even the bicentennial, like <laughs> all those blackballs and buses through Sydney is like one of my favourite protests. Like it just looks great. It, you want to be a part of it. Like, so, you know, no one wants to be friends with Tom Elliott. No one cares what they have to say. I don't never see people walking around. It's just stupid, whatever, Australia Day merch. And I would like it if I did because, I, you know, I like to start fights with people sometimes. <laughs> so not buying the the Gen Z party's proposal. Um, this was this is a little bit out of date now, but they, they oh, have proposed right. – Making twenty fifth of January first Australians Day, yes, a day of sadness, sadness, reflection, and reconciliation. They've decided that's when we do that now. And the twenty sixth of January would be New Australians Day, a celebration of all immigrants, and that's their solution. <laughs> oh, <God>. Okay, <laughs> really look, nice of them. You need to <laughs> no. First of all, January twenty fifth is also marked. It's called the last sunset. So just so you know, we've got we've got our we've got our days here covered in the way that we mark colonization in this country. Don't need any young people to come along and be like, hey, what about this good idea when we already have something like maybe we should just check that there's not something else there. No, <laughs> that's not it. We're not gonna go away just because you give us the day before. Like that doesn't work. That doesn't work. <laughs> mm. Yeah. That's not, yeah. that's not on TikTok though, Larissa. If it's not on TikTok, then the, the, the Gen Z party's not across mm. it. It would enter their feed. So not, Put this on TikTok. No. There you go. <laughs> it's a bad idea. <laughs> Consultation achieved. Just check with some mob. Well, why don't we weigh into stuff that's a little bit more substantive, you know, ignore all the culture war nonsense that happens every year and, yeah, talk about the stuff that is going to be talked about on Gen 26 at these Invasion Day rallies sort of calls for First Nations justice and the focus. Uh, I mean, there was some uh, the graphic for the Invasion Day rally in Nam, Melbourne, uh, for example, that's been put out is has got a has got a jam jar and it says jam your referendum in the middle of it, and there's a bunch of flags either side of it talking about the kind of stuff that that rally is going to be focused on. Treaty, stop arming Israel, abolish police and prisons, stop taking our kids, end Aboriginal deaths in custody, climate justice now, and abolish Australia Day. And that's also the hashtag, you know, and I think people will know if they're following First Nations justice activists as sort of saying, we're not having an Australia Day, we're celebrating this so-called Australia while these realities for First Nations people is, is affecting people's lives. So I guess... Yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts about what what do you think are going to be the focus of the Invasion Day rallies for 2024 and where the fight for First Nations justice is at in a sort of post-referendum Australia, Larissa? Yeah, so I think 
And uh, this is an interesting context, right, around post-referendum. And, you know, I think that people can be, can see the campaign that happened last year and just be like, you know, we can talk about the no campaign, all those different things. But for our communities, one of the things that was really out of touch in terms of a national campaign or a national electoral campaign is like, all those things that you just listed are the things that we talk about, not necessarily every year, but they get a good run in and out every other year and that sort of stuff in terms of the focus around what happens on Invasion Day. It's about truth-telling and really holding, I guess, you know, the political leaders in this country speak to the fire around what is happening and, what you know, why there is inaction. Um, but also I think threading the needle for a, a lot of non-Indigenous people and it is something where we put on for the broader community um, to kind of thread the needle from what's happened historically and how does that continue to modern day to continue to affect our communities uh, in terms of our, you know, our families talking about our rights and and those types of things. And it is a broader fight for justice. But the idea around the referendum and people were really confused around, you know, there's all this mobilisation that's happening by non-Indigenous people on the referendum. Where's the First Nations communities? And I just think it's like one of those things that was attached out of of step. And, you know, we can talk about the Albanese government and the reasons they make decisions and that sort of stuff. And obviously the First Nations people support it. And in the end, First Nations people will always vote within our interests. And I think those are good takeaways. But the reality is you're trying to run a national campaign around something that's around a representative model of voice to parliament. But the things that our communities turn out for are land rights, deaths in custody, you know, trying to stop our children from being stolen, talking about the different fights on country regionally and that sort of stuff. And so for me this year, obviously what's happening to Palestinians will have a huge focus on Invasion Day. There's an incredible amount of solidarity regardless of what different um, people that get funded by different people are saying around First Nations support for Palestine, it has always existed. Uh, And I think that's the right thing for us to do. You know, we lend our solidarity to our Indigenous brothers and sisters globally all the time. Our fights are connected in in so many different ways. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure that needs to uh, go on, you know, our political leaders. Um, I think there's pieces around, you know, people calling for a ceasefire, but also just like, you know, the things that the right-wing government are saying, Netanyahu's government, like, they're talking about exterminate. They're talking about genocide. Like, you can't be silent in this moment within history right now. And, and you, know, you know, we're never going to be the type of activists that back down. I think when we're looking at particularly the fights around climate justice, particularly looking at the climate um, disasters and that sort of stuff that are happening around the country, I think one of the things I hope people really start to understand is the amount of displacement that is happening in regional communities, but particularly First Nations communities that is that has been ongoing for the last couple of years. And, you know, there's no return happening there. And I think even if you think about, you know, the, the right to return and that sort of stuff for Palestinians to their land and that sort of stuff, like for Indigenous people, this is the core of our fight around our land rights. And so I, you know, I want people to take that moment and, and kind of join those dots as well around what's happening you know, looking in the Cape and that sort of stuff and it's looking at more evacuations that are going to happen and just like, you know, it is the government at the end of the day that says whether or not Aboriginal communities are viable. And, you know, many years ago, well, many years ago, but 2015, 2014, there was a big rallies and that sort of stuff that we were able to mobilise around the forced closures and get people to understand, like, the trauma that comes from being removed from country and climate disasters are absolutely going to keep doing that in this country. And so, talking about not just what's happening around people being removed, but also how they are being treated by the government. The fact that our communities are being left to dead last in terms of response and that sort of stuff. And the idea that, you know, even some of the national uh, payments that are happening, uh, emergency payments are much less than, you know, 
communities where people are majority white are getting and stuff like that and, you know, what role does racism play within that? I think deaths in custody really, um, for me, I think it's really important to see our communities mobilising around this. One of the things that really saddened me around the referendum was that it took so much oxygen from what was happening across the country and I think we're looking at, you know, there was a couple of deaths in custody. There's the stuff that's happening in Banksy Hill that absolutely does, you know, that place needs to be shut down. It's disgraceful what's happening there and the injustice that happening to, to the young blackfellas in that place. It is inhumane. But the idea that, you know, there are deaths in custody that were happening and, you know, in the week after the referendum, our community couldn't even mobilise the support because just devastated by the incredible racism that happened within that debate, but also how that vote went down. So for me... You know, I'm looking at January 26 and just actually kind of heartful in a way. It's just going to be so good to have our community back together in a way that's just like on our terms, you know, speaking how we want to speak and, you know, just being back together. I just think it's so important. Like that national gathering for our mob is just so important. So that's the thing that I'm looking forward to the most. So I hope there's not too many spoilers and counter protests and that sort of stuff because our community really needs, I think, this day. Yeah. Mm. What do you think of this kind of uh, really, I mean, it's all been a, a shit show obviously since the referendum, but this kind of really sinister white backlash uh, or, or the the uh, consequences that have flown from that. We've seen all these stories of like little councils saying, okay, no more acknowledgement of country, no more welcome to country. Um, I believe uh, Chris Minns uh, in New South Wales, they renamed this new station Gadigal <laughs> Station and then all the comments are racist, just Torrance racist bullshit of like, we voted no. And and, and clearly from a rape, racist rump in this country, the interpretation of the no vote was therefore no more First Nations justice and all that stuff's going to be over. And, and I suppose one might say, I mean, looking at these calls on Invasion Day, stop Aboriginal deaths in custody, um, you know, th- these demands that are going to be made on Jan 26 for Aboriginal rights, First Nations rights, you know, a cynic might say, or perhaps a reasonable person might say, well, Australia just said no, it just shouted no at a very moderate reform to try and make First Nations people's lives better. Why do we think they're going to listen to, to any of this stuff? Yeah, and I totally hear that, right? I think that, first of all, Australia always says no to First Nations people. So just like <laughs> there's a part of resilience and persistence that exists in our communities and that's the reason we are still here and we still protest, right? I think for me, one of the things that was really hard on the back of the referendum, like I didn't go into it with any delusions that it was going to win. Um, you know, we worked really hard. And one of the reasons that our campaigns team and the communities that we work with worked so hard is because we knew that a no vote would take things off the table. That's just the way it works, right? That's that's what happens within this country. And so now to kind of stand back up and say, okay, now we have to do the work to build the social license again. It's hard. It's really demoralizing. And I, But I think mm-hmm. The thing that's so important, I think, for people who were, you know, part of the campaign, who can see this for what it is, can see this as, you know, right-wing conservative backlash to, you know, racial politics within this country or any idea of, you know, being able to have a conversation around the true history of this country. This existed, you know, this, you know, part of understanding what's happening within politics and the rise of the far right and that sort of stuff and the way that they win is just understanding. I blame like Barack Obama for getting elected, like the idea that a black man got elected and then the far right just lost their shit and we're just like, okay, Cambridge Analytica, we're going to fuck up all the platforms, we're going in. Like they can't handle it. They can't handle that their, you know, their little piece of the world is just being torn to shreds as lies. And that's colonization, right? And so challenging that and the idea that they're losing generational support 
you know, I talk to young Bob and I say, look, in 10 years, the younger generation will take over the voting population in this country. So don't stop right now. At some point, we are going to have the voting power to make these shifts. So we've just got to keep working. And every kind of setback that we've had, our ancestors have had worse. You know, our old people were on missions. They were treated like dogs. You know, they were incarcerated in horrific circumstances. And we still see that, but understand our old people got through that. And the reason they kept fighting is for us. And we need to keep fighting for our gener- you know, generations to come. I think that the people who are allies, particularly, understanding that this is an organised backlash against us to stop us from achieving any material rights. And the reason that backlash exists is because the support on January 26 is with us. And so they are so worried about their power in this country, their ability to make political decisions, to kind of, you know, be the masters in this country because it's under threat. Mm. And so the way I think about it is like you need to actually, the people, the six over 6 million people that voted yes, don't just kind of pack up and walk away and it's like, oh, I didn't win, too bad. No, you need to stay with us, right? Because any other metric, six million people voting in one direction, like one direction, in this for something, whether it's a general election, that sort of stuff, we would win, right? The referendum was the worst, hardest thing to try and win in this country. That's what they gave us. And the reason they gave us the hardest hurdle to overcome, I think. I'm 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 fine talking like a conspiracy theorist after the referendum's <laughs> been run, but you know a lot of community members think we got set up to fail. Like, mm. who who's going to win a referendum ever in this country? And I want to win a referendum for a republic, so I'm mad about even going to the last referendum. Yeah. Okay, girl, you're in custom Vuitton I mean, at the Emmys as a nominee, as a Golden Globe winner. What would you say to younger Aya who had dreams of nights like this? I, she didn't dream of nights like this. She sort of dreamed of just like dental insurance. So <laughs> I would say we've got dental, we got eye, we got ear. Dental is so big, right? We just were on straight. Dental is huge. It really is. And I found out, I sort of, I grind at night. I didn't realize that about myself. Me too. So, Anyway, we'll talk about that later. Speaking of fighting, I'd be interested to hear about GetUp's plans for 2024. What are the big fights and campaigns that you guys are looking at? Again, I'm sure people are very familiar, but Million Members, progressive grassroots organization that's been around since about uh, 2005. GetUp taking on lots of campaigns, both in election time and outside of that. What's, What's on the agenda for 2024 for you guys? You know, I think that we are really focused on... Hopefully, 2024 is the year when the left get their shit together um, <laughs> because Trump is going to get elected at the end of the year. <laughs> uh, I hope. We've got a lot of work to do. You know, we have um, the referendum shows us that they know how to win and that they will win, you know, on their terms. They don't care about who they hurt in the process. But there is a lot of work that's been done to co-opt and confuse middle Australia, low information voters to make them feel like, you know, this grievance politics, they're just trying to import that, you know, from the US and it's working in so many places around the world. So I think there's a piece of like, don't take your eye off the ball. This year is going to be consequential. And I think there is a piece of like, we need to double down on the things that we're for. I, for us, like we are not stepping back from treaty. This is really generationally the only opportunity that we're going to have to win treaty. Like we got defeated in it three decades ago. We have to win it. And there are so many state governments, like what they're having in Queensland, that sort of stuff, who are, you know, kind of 
walk around like turtles, like ducking their necks in around treaty. Like we have to demand that substantive rights happen for First Nations people. That is the right way forward. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a black fella. There is work to do here for the progressive movement. I think in terms of looking at climate, we are so focused on energy in this country and it is really important to focus on energy and fossil fuels. But at the same time, our communities are being destroyed by climate disasters and we really risk a space where people normalise that this happens every single year. Mm -hmm. And what happens when we normalise climate disasters is political action doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. People say, this is just part of living in Australia. The reality is communities are being displaced. So, you know, how do we show up and talk about adaptation? How do we show up and talk about, you know, the billions of dollars that are going into subsidies into fossil fuels? Not just that that shouldn't be happening, but where are you investing in our communities? Where are, there are so many communities where, um, you know, you can't insure your houses, you can't go back and return to living in that community. People have been living here for generations, and I'm talking about white fellas as well. So the way that we talk about climate within this space, because you know the election that's coming up next year, Peter Dutton is going to try and turn this all into a cultural again. That's his only hope of winning yeah. government, and he's going to keep going. He's going to keep villainizing people. So for me. I think the things that matter to us, instead of being afraid and, you know, getting really bogged down and what does the policy look like and that sort of stuff, just being really, you know, ambitious around what we're for. Our job is to be ambitious. We have a progressive government, we have a progressive government uh, in parliament. Why aren't we demanding anything? Like, I just feel like <laughs> the left has totally gone missing over the last couple of years and we've got a lot of work to do. There is a cost of living crisis. Like, there, we should be galvanizing, we should be winning. Yeah. When conservative governments get in, they do the worst. You know, Trump's already promising over there he's going to drill, he's going to have an, a federal abortion ban, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Like Peter Dutton is going to run on stupid, really harmful things and we need to drown him out with things that are actually going to make a difference in people's lives. And that means we need to kind of get outside of our progressive bubbles and actually talk to people about things that affect them. Mm. I'm keen to know, like I guess there's been criticism in the past of get up strategy like or more political tactics um in you know conveying these these messages and actually getting wins and to know how the the strategy and the tactics are changing or will change particularly since i guess you've taken on your position as as a ceo like learning from things things like 2019 i mean i'm not I don't think that we can blame the 2019 election result on anyone, let alone um, get up. But for people who would criticise, yeah, the, the progressive movement's strategy then and particularly get up, what are the lessons we're taking from that? Well, I would blame get up for its stupid 2019 strategy. <laughs> it's terrible. All right. Um, <laughs> it didn't work for a bunch of different reasons. There were some some socials that we did that were absolute own goals and then we ended up with more front pages than Bill Shorten. So it's insane. Um, I would say that we have, there was a point of 2019, do we just pack up and just like not do elections and it was thousands of volunteers because it was an awful campaign, right? Fuck. And it was an awful experience of the campaign and the attacks were even worse after it. And so we spent years dealing with the attacks from Murdoch Media. It's fine. We can deal with that. Yeah. But at the same time, we've really shifted in the way that we do our elections work and we have been really, really successful. In some ways, um, I think we've been less prevalent in the media in terms of get up branded stuff. Mm. Um, but you know, we ran an incredible campaign in the last federal election talking about, you know, climate-affected communities, the fact that uh, Scott Morrison, you know, talking about, you know, there's a lot of people talking about how he didn't hold a hose, but actually how his inaction is actually causing this and that sort of stuff. And 
A lot of the work that we've done in terms of our organising is really picking and sticking where we are organising with, you know, frontline communities and passing the mic that is this incredible resource of GetUp, not just talking about the kind of skills that we have within the organisation, incredible resource in terms of like, you know, our small donors and, and the money that we have. We, we have a significant amount of resource here. So how do we turn that into regional-based campaigns? We're really talking to people where, you know, for the, you know, I'm not talking shit about the progressive movement, but you don't, they don't move a lot of money into regional areas. There's a lot of fixation around the metro areas and that sort of stuff. And that doesn't tell a whole story about what is needed within this country to change. And so for us, it's just like putting our money where our mouth is, going out and organizing, doing the long work. So we have an idea of where we are working. We've done a significant amount of organizing for almost a decade in the Northern Territory and across Northern Australia within Aboriginal communities. And those things have manifested into, you know, the fracking campaign. And I know that's under threat and what's happened um, with Tiwi Islanders and that sort of stuff with Santos. But holding out billion-dollar companies is no easy feat. And the idea that we have had so many communities organised and putting our resource in there, the work that we've done around housing and remote communities and really holding government's feet to the fire around what does it mean for cost of living in these communities. We've been having these conversations for many, many years because this is what the community wants to talk about. So I think how do we translate that? into communities that I think are weaponized within political debates. And I feel like a lot of, you know, low information voters within middle Australia regional areas are like this. The only media that they consume or that they have free to air is Murdoch media. And so I feel like we, to me, looking back at the referendum, that's an indictment on the progressive movement as well, that we didn't mobilize into the spaces and the votes and we didn't know how to have conversations broadly and invest to actually shift the votes that we needed to win. So we're really focused in our election work, you know, what is the policy that we're trying to, to change and actually who are the people at the front line and actually can you demonstrate with thousands and thousands of voters but also local people get involved in campaigns that this is actually popular because you don't shift Labor any other way if you can't yes. demonstrate that actually these people are going to have a go at them in the streets if they're not willing to do these policies. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Politicians benefit from people not knowing about what's happening in Parliament, right? Yeah. Yeah. We we were joking about Advance Australia before, but I'm interested in whether you think that they have become less of a joke. I mean, they were a joke in 2019. We had Captain Get Up getting out there. We all thought they were very funny. They were a bit hopeless. But, I mean, they were really involved in the No campaign last year and certainly the political wisdom or the analysis seems to be that a lot of their insane, often blatantly untruthful uh, and borderline racist uh, tactics were effective and cut through and had an impact. Is Advance Australia more of a threat and should we... Um, in the Greens perhaps and, and get up and progressive people generally be more more worried about them? I think we should take the far right seriously in terms of the way that we campaign and the way that we persuade people and what it, knowing what our messaging is. And I think for progressives, you know, I talk about I uh, do a lot of messaging research and that sort of stuff around persuasion and understanding what actually shifts people. We need to get better at around what our messages are because – the far right is really organised around this politics of grievance and this idea of tapping into what people experience in their day-to-day lives, and we often don't do that. Mm. We need to be serious about the far right, and I think that there are pieces within that, yes, Advance Australia, but I also say allegedly, because I don't want to get sued, uh, allegedly there were other far right organisations that also campaigned in the referendum We'll see on disclosures if they actually disclose it, but there's a significant global fight here that exists, right? Like mm. after the referendum, about a week and a bit after, I was on um, with about, you know, 100 Māori campaigners because they're talking about that 
far-right government over there are talking about yeah. going to a referendum on their treaty to get rid of it mm-hmm. and they are organised to just shut it down, right? So this is happening everywhere. It's happening in the US, it's happening in the UK, it's happening in Argentina. There is a far-right movement here that is very successful and we need to get better at our capability. So it's about organising. Organising really works in terms of the way that we inoculate people against the mis- and disinformation. But I think we get really stuck on like, what's the policy around how do we stop this? First of all, the AEC is never, ever going to have the capability to knock out election lies. Just, it's not what they do. What we need to do is reach people with better information and better campaigns. And so mm. I think about, you know, what does that mean what we're doing on platform? One of the things I hear overwhelmingly within the progressive movement is like, how do we reach young people? Like, you need to stop asking us that question every year like it's on the to-do list and actually work out how to do it because if you can't reach young people, guess what? The far right is reaching them. Mm. Like, it's this is, we're vying for the same voters. And I think even within the referendum, like, we had to inoculate so much of our base around Peter Dutton's bullshit and, like, understanding, like, they don't support Peter Dutton, but sometimes for some reason he makes sense to them. So, like, how do we make sure that we're inoculating people in the right way to understand what we're for, but also... We really matter on the way that we campaign on things as well. And I think it's just like, how do you just kind of reach the average normie voter? They're not watching political media. Mm-hmm. People are consuming podcasts. Are we having conversations around actually what's happening within politics? Or are we just stuck within our bubbles talking to ourselves and the people that we like about the, you know, it's kind of progressive wank and talking about policies and that sort of shit versus actually making it real to everyday people? Okay, hang on. I feel attacked. Hang on, Larissa. This is this feels really pointed to... I am attacking particular. you. <laughs> <laughs> this is really important work we're doing, Larissa. This is how we're going to win, just this podcast. Just we this don't podcast. need to do anything else. Yeah. <laughs> we're having Captain get up on next week, all right? Yes. So we're, having, we're hearing from all sides. Why would you give your enemy such a structured jaw? <laughs> Captain Get Up. He looked it's awesome. like such an attractive yeah, mascot. Yeah, I know. He looked kind of cool, yeah. Such a problem. <laughs> My last question for you is, is stage three tax cuts, right? Like, I mean, this is, this is a massive issue. To me, this is like, this should be, again, another big part of the focus of the political year in 2024. It feels like a lot of people have kind of gone like, oh, well, I guess it's happening. That's Albanese happening. has just mm-hmm. reaffirmed his government, said, yep, no, they're totally going to happen on July 1. If they continue for the next decade, as we know, what two hundred eighty-three billion dollars, forty-three, two hundred forty-three billions off the top of my head, just this insane. Yeah, it keeps going up. Yeah, insane. Yeah. Um, you know, robbing of public investment at a time when we need more money and more money going to rich people. I don't know. Is that fight over? If the Albanese government's sort of saying it's definitely going to happen, what does that mean for for Get Up and the Greens? Should we all be talking about this a lot more? I mean, this is the thing, right? This is what I'm saying. The, the left need to get their shit together because. We cannot have the stage three tax cut just go ahead. Mm. Like we are in a cost of living crisis and we can't win the argument that this is a bad policy from the Morrison era that the government, like it just almost feels like we're kind of just letting them off the hook and we're going to walk away. Yeah. Like they've said no, so we're going to walk away. No, they want to get reelected. The referendum says that uh, it's going to be pretty hard for them to form majority government. I don't think any government is going to form a majority government in this country again, but They have votes to win, and I think that we just shouldn't back down from the conversations around what this means. I think our challenge is how do we make it tangible for people, the idea that the government are about to do this really terrible thing. There is actually no better time to have this conversation around statutory tax cuts. You can't call it that. But what does this mean? How is the government making a bad decision, and how is it going to affect your long term? Right now, while people are experiencing a cost-of-living crisis, and you know, people can talk about inflation rates and that sort of stuff coming down. But the reality is people don't feel in their everyday lives that things are getting better. People no. can see rent rising and that sort of stuff. So the idea that you're telling them that the government is making a bad decision 
we have to make it a demand that the government cut these things. Like mm. you can't, we can't just let them off the hook on it. I this, mm. uh, and I think this also the way I, I feel this way about AUKUS as well. The idea that we're going to give yeah. billions and billions of dollars to these submarines, we can't do it. And the idea that there's like there's a barely a left campaign, and I'm like, uh, this is kind of like one of our bread and butter issues. Why? It's just like the idea of like, oh, Labor said it, so it's inevitable. Like, can we please throw some spines here and actually fight back because these things are terrible. Mm. Mm. What do you think, Emerald? I mean, I completely agree. Like, I yes, we can't just let them let them go ahead and and do that. I think it's remarkable that it, it does feel, and I know I am in a bubble, but it really feels to me as though there is this broad public consensus now that the stage three tax cuts are bad, even among people who are not politically engaged or might not identify as being on the left, and yet somehow we're accepting not only you know the government continuing to implement them, but a Labor government continuing to implement them, and yeah, mm. no one is sort of questioning that i mean the greens are of course questioning it but it doesn't it's not something that is yet presented as as an issue that we could maybe still win it does feel like it's presented as something that the government has done that is bad and that's why they're bad and Mm. it's true that yeah like can we reframe that to be like no we still this is something that is actively coming up on the agenda that we need to fight and we, I, mean, I don't think, we, and we shouldn't be afraid to yeah. follow the example of some of our political opponents and repeating that shit ad nauseum, mm, right? Like, true. like we should talk about stage three tax cuts as yeah. much as Albanese talks about yeah. growing up in fucking public housing until it okay? feels like, ridiculous. Yes, you know? yes, it, to the point where we're bored out of our minds. We think we're saying the same thing ever again. That's when it's actually going to start cutting through, and we've got six months before they actually kick in, and we can constantly be saying, and the numbers just speak for themselves. I mean, Adam had that big, you know, video about the rice the pile of rice and to try and visually represent the kind of tax cuts that we're talking about and did quite well, you know, and political organizing isn't just YouTube videos, but that's a good example of, you know, making it clear to people and, and making it driving at home, just how shitty these, this reform is and how much it's helping out rich people and fucking over the poor and working class people is um, that's rich territory. And when there is a bipartisan consensus, that's when certainly the greens could be like, yeah, we are a clear alternative here and this is bullshit. And yeah continued opinion polling as you say emerald shows that the public are, are with us so yeah it's fertile ground well yeah and even just talk to anyone <laughs> you know talk to a normal person they'll be like yeah, yeah. that's shit house <laughs> i mean i think that the, i talk about this a lot to our members as well and you know this is going back messaging is really important i think we need to understand what are the messages that people are repeating and there is a problem that we are still as progressives calling them stage three tax cut and talking this language because that doesn't actually resonate. Mm. People might know what that means but more often than not people don't understand what that means. So I think when we break down political organising conversations is like what is the bad thing that's going to happen? Who is the decision maker? How is this going to have an effect on me? And importantly for progressives, where is that money better spent and how does reinvesting that somewhere else that they care about actually improve their lives. And when you can get that equation, this is how you can kind of decentralize the conversation around, actually, this is the thing that needs to happen and this is why I believe it. And when people, like the ordinary person can kind of pick up that conversation. So there's lots of ways you can do it. There's like obviously the conversations that we have in in kind of the activism when we go out with our members and our volunteers, but also like on social media, right? Having these conversations, like just bringing down into the kind of that equation, thinking about this is my message, this is how I want to say it. And you know that it's replicable on those platforms, but just thinking, can someone who has knows nothing about this issue feel something about this and repeat it? And that's how we win. Like we have to repeat the message to be able to win. And there's a little bit of around how we sing from the same song, song book within that, but we've got the time to do it. 
And I think right now, you know, getting people to understand why we're in a cost of living crisis, like not explaining inflation, but it's because government are making bad decisions, mm. right? Just put it down to that. Like <laughs> the far right tells bigger lies. We can make it simplified. It's not lying. <laughs> it's bad decisions by the Morrison government. But anyways, who cares? The Labor government's still doing them. Yeah. Well, yep. here's to many wins in 2024. Hopefully, I hope uh, so. yes, uh, your Jan 26 is filled with a level of solidarity and, and, a, and a rejuvenation of uh, you know the righteous calls for First Nations justice. You can always go to getup.org.au to uh, find out what GetUp are up to and maybe get involved if you'd like. And as I said, in the show notes, we'll mention all the, the list of rallies that are happening around the country on Invasion Day for you to get out there and show you solidarity and support. Um, but Larissa, Baldwin, Roberts, thank you so much for being our guest on Serious Danger. Thanks for having me. Just one little thing. If you are going to an Invasion Day rally, like check out the websites and that sort of stuff, but just pop in and see if you can volunteer and help out marshalling whatever you can do on the day as well. Just get in there and help because they're going to be pretty big this year and all hands make light work. So volunteer. Well said. Thanks, Larissa. Appreciate it. Have a good day. I'm going to the beach. Oh, fuck yeah. feeling yeah not good but it could also be just because it's so hot in here thank you for listening to another episode of the serious danger podcast if you liked it please give us a five-star review on apple podcasts or wherever you're listening now say nice things follow the show help spread the word tell a friend that you're listening to it keep your earphones in in inappropriate situations and then when people are trying to talk to you take it take one out and go sorry i just can't stop listening to the serious danger (laughs) podcast (laughs) um Send people real. Send people all of our reels on Instagram. Like, just DM them, even if they don't respond, don't react at all. Send them to your crushes, your friends, colleagues. Um, you can find all of that on at Serious Danger AU on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We also have yeah clips and the full videos on YouTube. All the links to all the things are at SeriousDangerPod.com. And if you have something to say, don't keep it in. Let it out. Email us. Hello at SeriousDangerPod. Dot com. We love hearing from you. We sure do. Best of luck uh, this coming Friday, Jan 26. Good luck if, yes, wading through the culture war nonsense that will inevitably fill between now and then. Mm. And solidarity to all First Nations people in Australia, in Palestine and across the world who are oppressed by the dog shit nonsense of colonialism. And good luck to you, Emerald Moon, recovering from COVID. <laughs> Having a lie down after this. <laughs> <laughs> here, here. Goodbye. Goodbye. Serious danger, Australia.